need to follow all the different holy days that you might have on a liturgical calendar, but that's an interesting fact I thought fit really well with tonight's message. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I don't have a handout for tonight, but I will have the verses up here on the screen so that you can follow along, or you can follow along in your Bible as well. And uh, my message title is called Witnesses, as you see up on the screen. I've called it that because that's what I've come to believe is the focus of this passage. Here in this text, we have a transition. And that's really the thing that binds these first 11 verses together. It's working out a transition from the book of Luke to the book of Acts. And um, as the author, Luke, finishes up his story of Jesus' earthly ministry, he overlaps a little bit to kind of catch the reader up and then brings it to the end here in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, and then starts on a new story. Um, beginning with the the coming of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. So that's kind of how I came to my division of this text, where it starts and stops. And we see in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1, there's a reference to Theophilus uh, in these verses that follow. Luke says in the beginning of his, um, in this first book, I'm sorry, in the the book of Acts, uh, in this first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That word uh, began is important because it means that the gospel of Luke was just the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And here in Acts, it's not that Jesus' ministry has ended, but rather it continues. And so in Acts, uh, we see that this is just Luke's part two um, in terms of the ministry of Jesus. That fits with what Jesus said about himself in promising to be with his disciples even after his earthly ministry was over. So in um, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, it says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's that part that says that Jesus is going to be with them through the very end of the age. It's a promise he made to his disciples, and he meant it. So Acts really could be seen as the continuation of Jesus' ministry that he had among his disciples, and now uh, that's continued through his sending of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles. So even though this book is often known by its full title, the Acts of the Apostles, we just call it Acts, right? But the full title is usually the Acts of the Apostles, we could think of it also as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Or you could even say the continued Acts of Jesus. And I think all three titles would be correct here. But if we think of both volumes, right, the book of Luke and Acts, because they were written by one guy, uh, as a two-part account of the ministry of Jesus, then Acts 1-2 tells us that the Gospel of Luke covered everything from Jesus' birth to his resurrection, his last commands, and finally his ascension. And, uh, and that is true. Uh, this is exactly how the Gospel of Luke ends. The final paragraph in the book tells of Jesus' ascension. So we see in Luke 24, verses 50 through 53, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. So Acts 1-2 says that Jesus gave commands to his apostles through the Holy Spirit. 
And again, we find this also in Luke in two different commands. Uh, There's an uh, implicit command given to his disciples that they should spread the gospel throughout the nations. And so we see that in Luke chapter 24, 46, and 47. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the uh, third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then this is something that's more explicitly told by Matthew, again in the Great Commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and so on. So that's his first command to them, right? But the second command that he gave was to wait in Jerusalem until they received the Holy Spirit. So he says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's a reference to Pentecost. Uh, It's the event where the Holy Spirit would descend in tongues of fire upon the apostles and anoint them to carry out the ministry that God had for them. And so this is the pivotal point in the story. Uh, The Gospel of Luke is telling of everything that Jesus did while he was on earth in bodily form, and the book of Acts is largely the story of what the apostles did through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is where that turning point happens. But here's what Luke's summary, uh, I'm sorry, this is where Luke's summary of of his gospel stops. So if the book of Acts were a sequel movie, for example, then verses one and two would be the text that rolls up on the screen to catch you up. And uh, this is the summary text that fills in the viewer of everything that happened in the first. So if you haven't, you know, caught up on the gospel of Luke, this is kind of the summary text. Uh, Luke is saying to Theophilus, this is everything that I covered in the previous book. And now that, the, now that the audience is caught up, Acts 1 verse 3 might be thought of as the first line in this new story. It's picking up where the Gospel of Luke left off. So let's read that, Acts 1 verses 3 through 5. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing um, to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will now be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The way that you can tell this is an entirely new book, an entirely new part of the story, is that before in the Gospel of Luke, the focus, again, was entirely on Jesus' earthly ministry. And from now on, from this very first section in Acts, we see that the focus is on Jesus preparing his disciples for the future. So here in verses three through five, Jesus does two things. Uh, Number one, he provides sufficient proof uh, to his disciples that he is alive. And then number two, he gives his apostles specific commands so that they know what to do next, right? Two things, gives them proof of him being alive, and number two, gives them commands as to what to do next. So Acts 1-3, He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, right? People often wrongly state that faith somehow is believing against reason, right? Um, I think it was one of those old Christmas movies. It says, uh, faith is believing when common sense tells you not to, okay? And uh, uh, it's a wonderful life, I think that was was a quote from. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that later. But uh, that's a common idea that often carries uh, today, 
um, that people say, oh, if you believe in something, you must not have rational reasons to do so. But I don't think that's the Bible's stance. Certainly, um, belief is uh, involving things we have not seen yet, right? Um, Hebrews 11.1 tells us that. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But that doesn't mean our faith is irrational or that God is against giving proof. For God didn't just tell the apostles that Jesus was alive, but then never let them see him. But rather, Jesus appeared many, many, many times after he had been raised. And this was on purpose, I think. So we see this in 1 Corinthians 15, for example. Uh, Paul says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And, here's the key part, that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles. Okay, so notice that faith is not put against, or like, like it's fighting against proof or reason. He's saying that, no, you can talk to these people. They've seen Jesus. There's more than 500 people who have seen him alive, and this was intentional on Jesus' part. So um, in our text, Acts 1-3, it says that he presented himself alive by many proofs, okay? If we go back to that text, and, uh, and this wasn't all in one day either. It says, rather, he appeared to them 40 days, 40 days, which is how we actually get our uh, date of Ascension Day, uh, which, again, was on Thursday. It's 40 days after Easter. So why did Jesus do this? Well, because he was preparing his disciples for what was to come. He wanted them to know for sure that he was alive. He didn't want them to say in a few months later, well, I can, I can only remember seeing Jesus once. I, maybe it was a figment of my imagination. No, he wanted to make it absolutely clear that he was alive. Because very, very soon, these same disciples and apostles were going to suffer for their faith. So just from what we know in church history, this is what happened to most of the apostles. Uh, Paul, uh, who obviously came later, uh, was beheaded, according to tradition. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was also crucified. Uh, Thomas was pierced through with a spear. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was killed as a martyr. James was stoned, then clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot was killed after refusing to sacrifice to a sun god in Persia. Matthias was burned to death in Syria. And only John... John the Apostle is the only one who wasn't martyred for his faith. But he, even he, was exiled to the island of Patmos. So we know everything, at least from tradition, what's going to happen to these men. And Jesus wants them to be absolutely sure because they're, they're going to be tested on it, right? They're going to be asked to renounce this faith, and they know for sure, yes, Jesus really did rise from the dead. It was abundantly clear. But again, the second thing that Jesus did was to give them specific commands so that they would know what to do next. And here in Acts 1-4, he told them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promised Holy Spirit, which the Father would send to them, which Jesus said, you heard from me, quote. So where did they hear this promise of Jesus, right? Um, two passages come to mind, uh, both from John 14. So we could go to John 14, 15 through 17, and uh, during his earthly ministry, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. So there's 
one promise that he made about the coming of the Holy Spirit. But then a few verses later, in verses 25 through 26, these things I have spoken to you with, um, to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So those are the promises that Jesus gave while he was on earth. And as he's reminding his disciples of these promises, I imagine they're starting to remember, right? As he said, I already told you these things, they're starting to say, yes, okay, Lord, I remember that. Nevertheless, the disciples still might have been wondering, okay, I remember you making these promises in the past, Lord, but why are you telling us to wait now? Why wait? Why do we have to stay here in Jerusalem? And Jesus gives a reason for his command in Acts 1-5 with this key word, for. So if we go again to Acts 1-5, for, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So in other words, these promises that Jesus alluded to would be fulfilled shortly. Not just in some time in the future, but very, very soon. And actually, that's a reference back to Luke chapter 3 when he talks about John the Baptist. Because here it's John the Baptist's testimony. Uh, As the people were in expectation, it says, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So that's the promise that was made during Jesus' earthly life, and now it's going to come to fruition in Acts chapter 2, which is a whole other sermon, which is not for today, but we're just focusing on some of these promises here. Jesus is saying, for the time being, stay here, because that promise is about to, to, uh, to come to pass. So Jesus prepares his disciples for what is to come next. Uh, Jesus had said in the past that it was for his disciples' benefit, actually, that he send the Spirit in the first place. So think about that, right? They're, they're wrestling with this, this dilemma of him leaving them, and that's going to be hard enough, but he did tell them in the past, you know what, it's actually better that the Holy Spirit come and take my place as this new comforter. Why? Well, because the Holy Spirit is going to empower them to be witnesses throughout all of the earth. And that word witness is key. Remember again that the book of Acts is part two of what was written in the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke ended with Jesus saying these words, and pay careful attention to them. Luke 24, 45 through 49. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed Uh, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Here it is. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So see there in verse 48, Jesus said, you are witnesses of these things. See, this word witness has both a backward and a forward-looking element to it, right? If you've witnessed something, that means you've seen something happen in the past that, that has taken place and you remember it, right? But it's also going to be used, the same word witness, 
in the future telling sense, right, of proclaiming something about what you saw in the past. But here he's saying you are witnesses of these things. Of everything that Luke has has talked about in this book, they are witnesses. And it's a key word that's going to tie the end of this book to the beginning of the next in the book of Acts. So let's look in the next section of this text in Acts chapter 1. We're now in verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my, there it is again, witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. So if you remember the verses prior Uh, In Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Jesus had prepared them for the work that was ahead of them. He gave them sufficient proof that he was alive, and he also gave them commands as to what they should do next. In essence, uh, Jesus was trying to point them forward to the important active role that they would play in spreading the gospel once he is gone. And in trying to communicate that to them, he's saying, you're going to have work to do. But here, in verses 6 through 8, we can see that the apostles don't quite get it. They have this wrong idea about what's going to happen next, right? We just said Jesus did two things to prepare his apostles as to what's going to happen next. He he gave them proof, right, that he was alive, and he gave them a command. He said, stay here, wait for the Holy Spirit to come, right? And he's pointing towards this fact that you guys are going to play a role. This thing is about to happen regarding the Holy Spirit, you guys are going to have work to do. But they don't get it, because we can see that here in this question that they ask. The very next thing that's out of their mouths in verse 6 is, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, here, the problem is that they're assuming that Jesus is going to take care of it all. right? They're throwing out any kind of role that they might have in this whole, this whole thing. And... and uh, they're, they're saying, you know, Jesus, um, is this the time for this whole battle to be over? Is this the, the time for all of our struggles to cease? Is this time for all the persecution to stop? You've been killed. We saw that. We were scattered. Maybe now it's the end, right? Maybe, Jesus, you're just going to put an end to it all, usher in the day of the Lord, the new heavens, the new earth. That's it. Job's done. That's why they're asking in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, right? They're thinking of the day of the Lord. And when we say the day of the Lord, this is an idea that's found throughout different passages in the Old Testament, right? The whole idea of God's judgment, uh, God reigning with his people, setting everything right, right? And there's so many different elements to this idea of the day of the Lord. I have just a few verses up here for us. Uh, Isaiah 16, 4 and 5. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you, Be a shelter to them from the destroyer when the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and when he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Or we could say in Micah 4.1, and I'll just list these two. I won't keep going over and over and over again on this point. But it says, it uh, shall come today, I'm sorry, shall come to pass, I can, I'll get it out, in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up 
above the hills, and the peoples shall flow to it, right? These are glorious promises, right? And it's mixed with judgment language uh, against the nations and all the unrighteous, but it's also filled with these words of hope of this king and this nation being established, right? And you could say, at least on the positive side, the, the disciples are getting that Jesus is their king, right? In pointing forward to this, asking if the, the, the kingdom of Israel is going to come, they're getting that much, right? They're just not getting the timing of it right. Um, so the disciples are forgetting about some other key things that Jesus had told them would happen as well before any of this could be fulfilled. So if we jump back again to the, uh, the Gospels, go back to John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus also said this, right? So how do we know that the day of the Lord isn't going to come right away? Like Jesus has been raised, he's been crucified, he's, he's, he's raised again. How do we know this is not the end? Well, if they would have thought back to these words, they would have known. Because he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were in the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Okay? And again, he says in John 14, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance that I have said to you. All right, so Jesus had previously told them two things, at least, that we saw in these verses. Number one, they're going to be persecuted, right? If they persecuted him, they are also going to be on the receiving end of that. But also that he was going to send the Holy Spirit, right? And neither of those things have happened yet in the fullest sense of what both of those verses were, were pointing to. So this can't possibly be the time that Jesus is going to set all things right and, and bring in the kingdom of God, as much as they're hoping that would be the case. It's easier to think of it that way. It's easier for us to think of it that way, too. Like, if, you know, if we don't have to go through all this persecution and being hated by the world and God could just come back maybe today, maybe after this message is over, uh, you know, so that we could be in heaven with him forever, that would be wonderful. Uh, because then we wouldn't have to, to face all the trials and the brokenness of this world, right? Um, that's what they're thinking. They're, they're wanting this to be over, too. They want Jesus to take care of it all. But but here, it's, it's that Jesus reminds them that they're thinking incorrectly for two reasons. Number one, it's not for them to know the time of the day of the Lord. If we jump back to Acts 1, 6 through 8, he says that. And then secondly, Jesus was not going to resolve everything, at least not yet. Rather, Jesus emphasizes all that they have to do, the job that still remains for them. So Acts 1, 8 he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. See, there's that word again, uh, witness, right? We see it highlighted there. It's tying these two books together. It was mentioned back in Luke, and here we see it again. Jesus is saying the work's not done because they, the disciples, still have this key role to play in God's story. You see, Jesus had completed his task on earth, and now the job of proclaiming the kingdom of God was in their hands. And just as they had witnessed everything that Jesus said and did, now they are to take those events and their master's message and be witnesses, that is, good news bearers, to the rest of the world. 
Now, they wouldn't be alone in this, right? Far from it. Just as Jesus had promised, they would have the Holy Spirit with them who would do a number of things. It would guide them in truth, speak for them when they were called upon to answer for their faith, comfort them when they were persecuted, remind them of their status in Christ when things got tough. Jesus would still be with them, and he's still with us today. That's the encouraging thing, right? We haven't been left alone. He has sent another comforter to be with us to help us through these difficult times. Jesus has kept that promise. He is still with us through the sending of his spirit. But nevertheless, that doesn't deny the fact that they and we still have an important and a huge role to play. In fact, Jesus intends them to take on this huge task to bring the gospel to, and these different areas are listed here, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, it says. Many people in the past, and maybe you've heard somebody say this before, that uh, if you were to look on a map and, and, and plot these out, okay, it kind of forms concentric circles from where the disciples were at the time. So Jerusalem is where they are, right? Jesus is saying, stay in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere, right? That's the first one. And then all Judea, right, is, is a general geographic area surrounding that, okay? And then Samaria is even further out, and then to the ends of the earth represents the biggest circle of them all. So if you think of a, of a bullseye, right? Jerusalem being at the center. And each of these things that are being mentioned is going further and further out. All the way out to the ends of the earth. And so from that we know for certain that the you here doesn't just refer to the disciples that are right there in front of Jesus. Because they didn't fulfill this. Like these 12 or 11 uh, if that's all they're standing in front of him, they did not fulfill this. They didn't get to the ends of the earth. In fact, we still haven't. Uh, there's still some unreached people groups in the world who have not yet heard the gospel, even in the year 2019. So the you here has to refer to all believers. And so yes, even 2,000 years later, this verse still applies to you and I as well. We are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, geographically speaking, you could say that Pennsylvania is uh, pretty far removed from Jerusalem, so I think it's safe to say that for, as far as our proximity to Jerusalem is concerned, uh, we fit into the category of the ends of the earth, right? That means somebody took it this far. Uh, somebody from, from the point where, where it started in Jerusalem to Lebanon, Pennsylvania, brought the gospel message this far away around the globe, which is pretty amazing, right? People, we, we are here tonight because of the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of faithful people bringing that message this far so that today we are listening to that gospel, right? <clears throat> but again, 2,000 years later, the work still isn't done. There are still even some around us in Lebanon, Palmyra, Myerstown, Lidditz, Campbelltown, wherever you want to say, who still need to, to hear the gospel. And there are still some remote parts of the earth that need to hear it as well. And look, 2,000 years later, it's still not Jesus' time to return, at least not up to this point. We still, therefore, have a job to do. So let's move on to our final section for tonight, which is verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them 
in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come the same way you saw him go into heaven. Jesus has now finished his mission on earth and he has communicated everything he needed uh, to his disciples. With all that complete, he is now taken up into heaven and this is the last they will see him uh, during their earthly lives. Now, as all this happens, the disciples continue to stare up into the sky. And to be honest, that doesn't surprise me, right? If I had just seen somebody, somebody suddenly float up into the air, right, I think I would be staring up into the sky as well. And I bet you would have as well. So with that being said, it's always struck me as a funny thing that the two angels suddenly appear next to them and say, basically, why are you looking up into heaven? Well, yeah, uh, of course, Jesus just went up into heaven, Right? There's a reason why they're staring. And again, I think we would too. What kind of question is that? Well, I suppose if you're an angel, and it's not that unique, you probably float in all kinds of directions. But here, for human beings, it's quite amazing. Uh, here's what I think the, the, they're getting at, right? It's not a ridiculous question, of course. There's a reason they're asking it. Um, I don't think they're literally wondering why the disciples are looking up into the sky where their Savior was just taken a moment ago. Obviously, that's pretty amazing and something to look at. I don't think the angels are questioning the significance of that moment either. Rather, what I think they're asking is a little bit more figurative. In light of the, what the disciples just asked about Jesus, okay, about when he was going to set up the kingdom of God, you remember that? The angels are asking, why are you waiting around passively for God to do something next when Jesus has already given you instructions on what your next step should be. The angels are essentially saying, and this is what I think they're saying, that this Jesus will again return someday, but now is not the time to just stand around and wait for that day to come about. In other words, they're saying, you've got work to do. Jesus has made that very clear already before he left. And so in the very next verse, the disciples get right to following Jesus' orders. They go from the Mount of Olivet and go into Jerusalem, where in just a few verses they will receive the Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, what are we to make of this passage? How do we apply it? I think we need to be careful in our application. Uh, I think it would be all too easy for somebody to take the angel's line, uh, where he says, oh, why do you stand looking into heaven and say, therefore, uh, we should somehow not spend all of our time thinking about heaven, rather we should just get to work? I think that would be the wrong application. I don't think that's what they're saying. Certainly the Bible isn't against us reflecting on God's promises. For starters, after the angels ask this question, their very next words are to remind the disciples about Jesus' promises to return. And then secondly, we have other passages that encourage us to think upon a Christ's return, such as 1 Thessalonians 4, where it talks about Christ's return and then says, therefore encourage one another with these words, right? So we're encouraged to do that. So I don't think the application is that we should stop thinking about heaven or Christ's return. But I do think this passage is meant to remind us not to be passive. Jesus is coming back someday, yes, and we can cling to that. But until that time comes, we still have a job to do. We're called to be witnesses of Jesus. That's our task. We're to remember that our Savior is alive, and now we have the Holy Spirit to help us. And that we're called to reach people in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth.
I think sometimes we forget that's the message we bear. That's an exciting message, that the king has rescued us, that our king is alive. And why wouldn't we tell that to everybody that we know? That's convicting for me as well. So may God give us that courage, that strength, and that remembrance to bear in mind how wonderful a message that we have uh, so that we can have no fear in being witnesses uh, for this world. Let's pray.